the first episode of Primary Care Anywhere, a podcast focused on outpatient medicine, brought to you by the internal medicine residents at the University of Utah, where we are living life elevated in beautiful Salt Lake City. My name is Catherine, and I am a new second year resident. Having just completed my intern year, those first few months as an intern are still relatively fresh. Not sure if I want to laugh or cry thinking back. Just kidding. I've been pretty fortunate to be a resident at a residency program that strives to both live and practice medicine in a way that is uplifting and brings us together as a community. We are always looking for new and creative ways to both teach and to learn. In light of the chaos that COVID-19 has brought to the medical community and on a smaller scale to our residency program, we have naturally had to adjust and make changes accordingly to accommodate our residents and our patients. Thus, This is the perfect time for our residents to start a primary care podcast. Our goal is to create podcasts on relevant outpatient medicine topics by residents for residents, specifically for our incoming interns. We hope that this podcast will provide some go-to guidance in treating common illnesses frequently encountered in the clinic setting. We're kicking off our podcast series with osteoporosis. We will start with a brief case scenario before reviewing causes, risk factors, diagnosis, and treatment. We will wrap up by tying the case together with what we have learned. So, without further ado, let's set the scene with the case scenario. Mrs. S is a 68-year-old female from Salt Lake City who hasn't seen her primary care physician in the last several years. Past medical history is notable for hypothyroidism, treated with Synthroid. She presents to her PCP for a wellness checkup. In thinking about this case, What questions do we want to ask our patient to assess her risk factors for osteoporosis? Regardless of risk factors, would we screen her based on the limited information we know? If so, how do we screen? How do we interpret her screening tests? And finally, if she is found to have osteoporosis, how do we treat? Hey guys, this is Joel. I'm going to be talking a little bit about the causes, the risk factors, and screening methods for osteoporosis, um, basing this a lot on the USPSTF recommendations and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, or ACE, guidelines from 2020. So in terms of what causes osteoporosis, there's a lot of things. Uh, In primary osteoporosis, uh, we think about this generally being caused from just general processes of aging, which I'm not going to get into a whole lot of detail on. Um, there are some notable secondary causes of osteoporosis, and those are things that uh, we a lot of times do to people. So giving them steroids, glucocorticoids are a big uh, cause of osteoporosis. Um, but other drugs can do it as well, like cyclosporin, aromatase inhibitors, um, some older anti-seizure medications like phenytoin can do it too. Uh, secondary causes otherwise include things like endocrine disorders, so uh, cortisol excess or insufficiency can cause it, hyperparathyroidism, thyroid disease, um, hypogonadism uh, can cause it as well. Some other notable extraneous factors like um, alcohol and tobacco use are other notable causes of um, osteoporosis as well. For risk factors, um, a lot of this I'm basing on the uh, FRACS, their fracture risk assessment tool based out of uh, the UK. Uh, the, the main factors that go into that calculation are age. So advanced age is the obvious most notable risk factor for osteoporosis. Um, having a previous fracture, steroid use, a parent history, mom or dad with a hip fracture, 
low body weight, less than 127 pounds, um, current tobacco use, excessive alcohol use, rheumatoid arthritis, and if there's another secondary cause present, so things like the ones the, the causes that I had mentioned previously. In terms of screening, the USPSTF recommends with a grade B recommendation that all women that are 65 years or older get uh, bone mineral density testing, and I'll get into that in just a second. If you're less than 65, but also have one of those risk factors for osteoporosis that I mentioned previously, you really should be considering getting bone mineral density testing for your patients. In men, which we see a lot more at the VA, um, there's no strong recommendations for screening in men, but if you do have uh, patients that have risk factors for osteoporosis, you should really try to be thinking about screening them with a bone mineral density testing. The main screening method that we use is a DEXA scan, which is just generally x-rays um, that look at various parts of your body. It's your femoral neck, it's your vertebral columns, and your um, uh, distal radius, and trying to figure out uh, how dense those bones are there. I'm going to let Gwen talk a little bit more on how we actually use those scores to diagnose it, but generally, just so you know, that's what we use to to screen folks with osteoporosis. As a quick aside, uh, there have been a number of trials that have looked at the efficacy of actually screening folks for osteoporosis. Just very briefly, there's a big trial in the UK with 12,000 women that randomized women to screening or usual care. And interestingly, in the screening group, they really only had a mildly reduced risk of fracture, so 2.6% over five years versus 3.5% over five years. So really an absolute risk reduction of about 1%. And that was just in hip fractures, but no other difference in mortality or osteoporosis-related fractures or quality of life. There's a bigger trial in Denmark with 34,000 women that found no difference after five years in any fractures between a screening and non-screening group, although that analysis was pretty controversial I was reading. So just kind of some nuggets, uh, as we sometimes have uh, lots of screening tests that we offer folks um, and can kind of help prioritize some screening. Hey, this is Gwen. I'm going to go over the diagnosis of osteoporosis. Before we get into it, let's start with a couple definitions. First, we'll get our DEXA report back, which measures bone density and converts this into T-scores and Z-scores. A T-score is the number of standard deviations your patient is from the normal mean value of a healthy 30-year-old of the same sex. A Z-score is the same concept, but adjusted for age, race or ethnicity, and sex. Today, we'll be talking about T-scores and diagnosis in postmenopausal women. We're using some guidelines from the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. But know that the WHO recommends using the same T-score cutoffs in men, although there's a lot fewer data for standardization. So you can think of the diagnosis of osteoporosis in three major buckets. The first is those who have a low trauma fracture to the spine or hip in the absence of other metabolic bone disorders. So a low trauma or fragility fracture is a fracture from a force similar to a ground level fall that you would not expect in someone with healthy bone. There are exceptions for the skull, face, and digits. This is regardless of bone density. 
So if someone comes in with a hip fracture from a ground level fall without another bone disorder, they have osteoporosis, regardless of their T-score. The next bucket is those with a T-score between negative 1.0 and negative 2.5. And remember that the more negative the number, the worse the bone density. Normal bone is considered T-scores between 0 and negative 1.0. This range from negative 1 to negative 2.5 is the osteopenia range. However, if your T-score falls in this range and you have a fragility fracture of the proximal humerus, pelvis, or distal forearm, or an increased FRAX risk, you also classify as osteoporosis. The FRAX score, like Joel talked about, is the fracture risk assessment tool. It takes into account things like age, sex, country of residency, ethnicity, weight, family and personal history of fracture, as well as some specific medical diagnoses, medications, and substance use. You can find calculators for this online. They're also often included in the DEXA report. The FRAX score is country-specific, so in the United States, an increased FRAX risk is considered those with a 10-year probability of a major osteoporotic fracture of 20% or more, or a hip fracture of 3% or more. The final bucket to think about is those with a T-score of negative 2.5 or lower, as measured in the lumbar spine, femoral neck, total hip, or one-third radius. And a T-score of 2.5 or lower in any of these areas would give someone the diagnosis of osteoporosis. Once a diagnosis of osteoporosis has been made, according to these T-scores, that diagnosis persists, even if subsequent DEXAs show an improvement in that score. All three of these categories get pharmacologic treatment, which we'll get into in a moment. The final thing I want to talk about is further stratification into fracture risk of high risk versus very high risk. Anyone with osteoporosis is considered high risk for fracture. Those with very high risk are important to think about because there's some evidence that starting with anabolic agents in these folks, as opposed to anti-resorptive agents, may reduce vertebral fracture risk. Those at very high risk include people who have had fractures in the last 12 months, those with fractures on osteoporosis treatment or on bone-harming medications like long-term steroids, those with very low T-scores of less than 3.0, those at high risk for falls, and those with FRAC scores of greater than 30% for a major osteoporotic fracture or greater than 4.5% for hip fracture. Bisphosphonates are the backbone of osteoporosis treatment. These are anti-resorptive medications. They bind to hydroxyapatite in bone, reducing the activity of bone-resorbing osteoclasts. Those available in the U.S. include alendronate, ibandronate, resendronate, and zalendronate, which is IV. For the oral bisphosphonates, the most common is alendronate. It's dosed at 70 milligrams once weekly. Common side effects include reflux, esophagitis, and esophageal ulcers. The risk of all of these can be mitigated by proper administration, so these need to be taken after a prolonged fast, typically first thing in the morning, swallowed with a full glass of water with the patient sitting upright and nothing PO, including medications, for at least 30 minutes after administration. Counseling your patients on taking this correctly is integral to getting a good therapeutic effect. Contraindications to these meds include anything that would prevent someone from taking it correctly, so for instance, if they couldn't sit upright after administration, as well as things like esophageal disorders, so achalasia or strictures, and then GI malabsorption, like celiac, Crohn's, or a history of gastric bypass. Contraindications to oral or IV agents include drug hypersensitivity reactions 
or hypocalcemia, which can be worsened by these meds. You need to use them in caution with patients with reduced kidney function. And then for zelenginate, one really important thing is to counsel your patients on the possibility of an acute phase reaction. So about 30% of patients will get a flu-like illness with pretty severe myalgias and fever after getting these infusions. They feel pretty miserable. You can pre-treat with acetaminophen and also give that to treat symptoms, but really important to make sure you counsel on for administration. You can't talk about bisphosphonates without talking about osteonecrosis of the jaw. This might be one of the first things your patient brings up if they've Googled these medications before talking to you about them. So this was first reported in patients with advanced cancer who were receiving high-dose bisphosphonate therapy. We're talking 10 times the annual dose of zelenginite that we use to treat osteoporosis. For the doses used to treat osteoporosis, the risk is pretty low. So 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 100,000 patients per year. To put that in perspective, in a study of women aged 65 to 69, the risk of any fragility fracture was over 2,500 per 100,000. And this isn't just with bisphosphonates, it's also with drugs like denosumab. The primary risk factors are dental problems. So always make sure you do a thorough mouth exam before starting someone on these medications and consider referring them to dentistry if they need to have any work done prior to starting therapy. The second rare but serious side effect are atypical femoral fractures. This is another rare event, but can be seen in long-term bisphosphonate therapy. But again, to put in perspective, for an 80-year-old woman with severe osteoporosis, her risk of osteoporotic fracture, as calculated by FRAX, would be 25% if untreated. When we treat with bisphosphonate therapy, we see a 50% reduction, so down to 12.5%. Within each of those risks includes the risk of atypical femoral fracture, which if untreated would be 0.01%. That does rise to 0.5% when treated, but bottom line, the number of fractures prevented with osteoporosis treatment far outweighs any risk of atypical femoral fracture or osteonecrosis of the jaw. Once you've started a patient on bisphosphonate therapy, you can consider a drug holiday after the patient has been stable as measured by their bone density with no other fractures. For oral therapy, consider a drug holiday after five years of treatment. For zelenginate, consider after three years of treatment. For patients who are very high risk, you're going to want to treat a little longer. So with oral therapy, go ahead and do six to ten years, and with zelenginate, those patients should have at least six years. When to end the holiday isn't well established, but consider restarting therapy after any fracture, any increase in fracture risk, or any decrease in bone mineral density beyond least significant change. All right, so I'm going to talk a little bit about non-bisphosphonate therapy for the treatment of osteoporosis. And the first and most important thing is lifestyle management. Um, the first thing I'm going to talk about is exercise. Um, generally, we'll counsel patients to try to emphasize non-weight-bearing but high-force exercise, so things like strength training with leg press or shoulder press or bands, things like that. Um, that's been shown to increase bone mineral density the best of any form of exercise. We'll try to counsel patients to get between uh, around 30 minutes, around three times a week. Um, we know that that um, helps reduce the risk of overall fractures in, in adult patients. Um, the other big lifestyle thing that we always need to talk with patients about is smoking cessation. This is a huge one, not only for osteoporosis management, but also for cardiovascular risk reduction and preventing cancer. 
with regards to alcohol, you know, counsel patients to try to minimize as much as possible to reduce the risk of osteoporosis in general. And then a note on calcium and vitamin D. Uh, with calcium, generally we're shooting for about 1,200 milligrams of elemental calcium per day. And just to put that into perspective, that's kind of actually a lot of calcium. About a cup of yogurt has about 250 milligrams of calcium. So, you know, if people want to eat five cups of yogurt, that's kind of a lot, but that'll do it. Uh, A cup of orange juice has 300 milligrams. A couple ounces of cheese has 200, 300 milligrams. Uh, If they don't eat dairy products, you can have them eat beans, which has a little bit less. Um, Dark leafy greens has a little bit less. Almonds has some calcium. But generally, um, will supplement their calcium intake with calcium tablets uh, of 500 to 1,000 milligrams per day. With regards to vitamin D, the optimal level of vitamin D is pretty controversial, despite having lots of studies on it. Um, Generally at the VA, we'll shoot for a level of 30 or so um, and give them supplemental vitamin D to get to that level. Uh, just notably, this is on the basis of subgroup analyses in large trials that show that women that took calcium and vitamin D just happened to have fewer fractures, which is likely confounded by a couple of other factors. Um, with regards to non-bisphosphonate therapy with other medications, at this point, a lot of times we're referring our patients to the bone health clinic at the VA. But just so you know what medications they're sometimes considering, Um, One of them is called denosumab, which is a rank ligand inhibitor that prevents osteoclast activation. This is an injection subcutaneous that's once every six months. And we use this in women that are at high risk of fracture that cannot use bisphosphonates for whatever reason that Gwen's going to talk about. Um, One thing to note about denosumab is that you do get a little bit of rebound risk of increased risk of fractures after you stop it. So a lot of times women will be on this indefinitely. Another medication is called teriparatide, which is an anabolic agent that has activity similar to parathyroid hormone that stimulates osteoblasts. This is a once a day subcutaneous injection. Um, and we use this in women that are at particularly high risk, again, of osteoporosis and osteoporotic fractures, again, that cannot use bisphosphonates for whatever reason. And just notably, women should really only use this at most for two years before transitioning to some other kind of agent. The other medication that you might see in some of your patients is raloxifene, which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. That's a pill. It's once a day. And uh, we use this in women that have an increased risk of breast cancer or if they can't use any of the other above medications that I've already talked about. So just a brief overview of um, some non bisphosphonate therapy for patients with osteoporosis. Now that we have learned about the underlying causes of osteoporosis, risk factors, and how to screen, diagnose, and treat, let's bring our case scenario full circle. Based on Mrs. S's gender and age alone, she should be screened for primary osteoporosis. She needs a DEXA. We know she has a history of thyroid disease, and upon further questioning, we learn that she is a heavy drinker and smoker. Fast forwarding, we learn her T-score is negative 2, which falls between negative 1 and negative 2.5, putting her in the osteopenia category, at least initially. She has no known fragility fractures, but we still need to calculate her frax. I plug her info into the calculator. As a reminder, she is a 68-year-old female, 
let's say 70 kilograms and 165 centimeters, a current smoker who drinks greater than three drinks per day and has had no previous fractures, no history of fracture in her parents, no glucocorticoid use, and no rheumatoid arthritis or secondary causes of osteoporosis. Based on this information, her 10-year probability of having a major osteoporotic fracture is less than 20%, but her risk of hip fracture is just greater than 3%, sealing a diagnosis of osteoporosis. We schedule a follow-up to talk to Mrs. S about her diagnosis and our plan. First on our agenda is discussing lifestyle management, including non-weight bearing, high force exercise, 30 minutes, three times weekly, and of course, having those tough conversations about alcohol and smoking cessation. We would also recommend supplementation with calcium and vitamin D through diet or tablets and a bisphosphonate pending no contraindications. And just like that, we're at the end of our first podcast. We are excited to see how this podcast may grow and transform and appreciate you coming along for the ride. To find out more about the podcast or our internal medicine residency program, please check out our website at medicine.utah.edu slash internal medicine slash residency, or follow us on Instagram at utahimcmrs to see all the fun things we're getting into. That's it. We'll see you guys soon, hopefully in the mountains, but wherever you are, we hope you're having the very best day.